You're listening to Back to the Light with J.D. Rieger. Safe distance. Hey, everybody. Welcome to yet another episode of Back to the Light. I am J.D. Rieger. I hope everything is okay with you. I can definitely feel a certain anxiety building. As I record this, Chicago, where I live, is mourning the tragic shooting of Adam Toledo, and the closing arguments for the Derek Chauvin trial are taking place. It all just makes what I'm doing feel just more than a little insignificant. But I press on because it's all I know how to do and hope that it brings someone out there a few moments of peace. My guest this week is my old friend, musician, and songwriter Janet Simpson. Janet is a veteran of the band's Teen Getaway, Delicate Cutters, Wooden Wand and the World War IV, Timber, and more. Her debut solo album, Safe Distance, came out earlier this year and is getting rave reviews. You can find it on Spotify or at JanetSimpsonMusic.com or JanetSimpson.Bandcamp.com. It was truly a joy to get to reconnect with her after too many years. And we'll get to our conversation very soon. But let's kick things off with maybe my favorite track off of Janet's new album, Safe Distance. This one's called I'm Wrong. Stop me. 
And now here's me talking with Janet Simpson. Janet, thanks for joining me on the show. I'm really excited to be here. Of course, uh, I want to talk about your new record, which is awesome. Um, But before we do that, the reason that we know each other is because the band I used to be in and the band you used to be in were kind of buddies 15 years ago or something. Does that sound right? Yeah, it kind of takes my breath away to think that it's been that long ago. But yeah, yeah, we were we were great friends and had so many great shows and great nights together in Murfreesboro and in Alabama and all around in between. So really great. Yeah, of course, I'm talking about your band, Teen Getaway, and my band, Glossary, not really my band, but of the band I was in. And one thing I thought that kind of connected us was the fact that we were both from small college towns outside of bigger cities. Yeah. Did you guys ever find it was hard to make the transition from being a Montevallo band to being a Birmingham band? You know, eventually all of us ended up moving to Birmingham and Nashville being a really tough market to be a band in. um, Birmingham was a bit different. Birmingham had a really strong DIY scene that was really starting up around the early 2000s when all of us, you know, kind of like eventually moved to Birmingham. And so we we found our people uh, finally and, and started to put together shows. But there weren't really many traditional venues to play in Birmingham at the time. So it took really until Bottle Tree opening in Birmingham for us to have like a regular club that we played um, and could rely on good shows in. But before that, it certainly was hard. You know, we really kind of had to make it our own thing. And and really, the DIY scene was the way to do it. Yeah, I, I remember us playing a show at the Nick together. That was fun. Yes. And I remember yes. some warehouse space or something where Jim and Tommy from the Passport Again got into like an ice bucket challenge or something. I don't remember (laughs) where that was or what that space was, but I do remember we all slept there, I think, after the show. Oh, wow. I wonder if that was the boiler room, which was kind of a punk DIY warehouse space out west of on the west side of Birmingham. That, That could have been around that time. That would make sense. But my memories are fuzzy. (laughs) on that yeah mine too why did the uh why did team getaway quit quit playing together you know um we had worked i don't know a band that worked harder to record albums and then scrapped them um that i've been in and we did that a couple of times and we, we worked so arduously and so long-term on a full-length album after releasing two EPs. And right about the time that we really kind of found our stride with what would become hits and missives, our drummer, Spencer Schultz, got sick with melanoma. He was diagnosed with stage four uh, melanoma, or as, as close to stage four, I think, as you can get in, underneath that. But Um, you know, he hung on for a while and and we continued to play shows, but it was so clear that he was really tired. Um, 
And it felt like a natural time to take a break and give him a chance to kind of have some downtime and get well. And unfortunately, um, during that hiatus, you know, he did really well for a, a while and we were really hopeful, but he suddenly took a turn for the worse in May of 2017 and died in July of that year. And so any hopes that we had of ever being able to get back, you know, kind of we we left them there when Spin died. You know, I think a lot of bands, you you might replace a band member if one of them decides to quit or, you know, needs to make a life change or a move. But in Teen Getaway, Teen Getaway was Teen Getaway because of uh, the four of us. It was a equal writing contribution, e- you know, equal creative input. Um, and the dynamic was really about the four of us. And so it just didn't feel right to do it any other way. I was certainly really sad to hear about Spencer's passing when it happened. And I, I definitely remember him super fondly as an amazing drummer. Oh my gosh. He was just an amazing drummer and an amazing artist. Um, if anybody listening is a visual artist or interested in visual arts, look up his art. It's He was just a phenomenal person as well. Just genuinely sweet and kind and fun to be around. And, you know, creating was his life. Um, so I feel so lucky to have had that time in a band with him because he was just, that's definitely one of the hardest things I've ever been through is losing spin. Was the delicate cutters project, was that your next thing after teen getaway or is there, or was there something else? Um, you know that they kind of overlapped. So teen getaway started in 2001. Um, and delicate cutters started in 2002. Um, and so whereas the songs we were writing in Teen Getaway were kind of these um, poppy, Jim always, Jim is who co-fronted um, Teen Getaway with me. He always called it bubblegum scrunk. <laughs> and so that that's a pretty good descriptor. Um, Delicate Cutters was much more of a, a way for me to do a, a singer songwriting thing um, with a little more folk influence to it. And so I kind of did those bands simultaneously for a long time and released three albums with them. And then, um, you know, I've, I've done work with other bands just as an auxiliary member during that time as well. Yeah. I know one of those bands is wooden wand, which, um, I will admit to not personally having known very much, but I was sharing your website and info with a friend of mine. And and he was just like, Whoa, she was in wooden wand. That's awesome. You got to ask about that. (laughs) So I guess I got to ask about that. Oh yeah. That was, that was a really fun opportunity that came about. So James Jackson Toth, who is the, he goes under the moniker of wooden wand for a lot of his creative work, um, had married, a person who worked at a promote as a promoter at Bottle Tree named Leah. And the two of them were living in Lexington, Kentucky, and he was looking for a new backing band. And she suggested that he get in touch with a few Birmingham musicians who were working together at the time. And that was myself, uh, David Hickox and Brad Davis, who um, some listeners might remember from Plate Six and Broken Letters. Um, and 
uh, Duquette Johnston, and Jody Nelson of Through the Sparks. The we were playing as a group in a, a a project called the Gum Creek Killers, and so James came down and we recorded a single together as his backing band um, for that single, and or seven inch. I guess you, it's hard to call anything a single these days, but um, it just went so well that we decided to work together on a whole album, which was called Briarwood, and. Um, that just continued to evolve. Uh, so the band that we started calling our, the band World War Four, so it was Wooden Wand and World War Four. It was myself, David and Brad, um, and James and Jody, and we toured the United States and Europe together, and and just had a blast. We recorded four albums, three of which have been released. One is still sitting in a sitting um waiting for two songs to be mixed. And, and I, I don't know when we'll get that done, but that's, that's been about five years in the making, but it was really, a, a, James is a brilliant songwriter and so much fun to work with. And the dynamic of that band was really great. And I learned a lot in that band as well. Yeah. I was, I was, I was wanting to ask if maybe that was an eye opening experience for you to be in a project that was, you know, successful on, I guess something of a of a larger scale. Yeah, it it really was. Um, well, first of all, just getting the opportunity to tour so much um, for a couple of years, which I hadn't. I would go on, you know, pretty short stints for the most part. You know, two weeks at a time here, two weeks at a time there, and we we toured a lot more with that band, and um, that was definitely the first time I ever got to go to Europe and and learn what it was like to tour there. Um. But there's a lot of creative lessons, too. Um, One of my favorite things I've ever done is work on the Wooden Wand album, Blood Oaths for the New Blues. And what what was so powerful about that experience is that we took the songs, we started to record them in this very traditional, like, okay, he wrote the songs, we're going to back them kind of way. And we realized that we just needed to deconstruct the songs completely and start from scratch. And it was the first time I've ever been in the studio where it was like everything we just did, we're going to just forget it. And we're going to start over and we're going to reimagine these songs completely. And it was so freeing, you know, to just like let go of your preconceived notions of what the song was supposed to do and to peel back from that. And so we kind of did, you know, what Neil Young loved to do and assign people instruments they weren't necessarily comfortable playing on and said, here, why don't you try playing with this slide guitar that you've never played before? And why don't you be the bass player? And why don't you play this, you know, change your instrument up and see what you hear. And it was so freeing. I mean, it was just no longer were you supposed to be like this really stellar player. It was about your creativity and what you were hearing. Were any of those lessons uh, translated into your new solo work? I think so. Um, I definitely had moments in the studio with this album. I'll use Black Turns Blue as an example. Um, we've been playing Black Turns Blue live for, you know, a year by the time we went into the studio to record the album. And when we were recording it and I was listening back, I just thought, 
this sounds like an anthem. This song's not really meant to be an anthem. I don't know why it's coming across this way. It never feels like this when we play it live. And so I just had one of those moments where I was like, okay, I, I don't need to scrap the song. It's, I just need to reimagine how it needs to be played. And so I took it back to bare bones and rebuilt it um, with a softer touch, basically, and, and just tried to be, let the song be the song and just embellish it here and there to bring out moments and moods from the song instead of trying to stick to what I'd always done. What was the decision process for deciding to use your name instead of a project name or the Delicate Cutter's name? Yeah, you know, maybe maybe it has been my experience playing in Will Stewart's band. He and I had a conversation about it just kind of randomly on the road one day. I said, you know, I think he even said, well, if you release something, you should just do it under your name. And I was like, oh, no, I've never done that. That feels so uncomfortable. I mean, I've done it but when I was a kid, you know, not as an adult. And I was like, ah, it just feels uncomfortable. He was like, you know, why? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know why. Maybe it felt comfortable to put, instead of it being my name out there, put something that sounded more creative than Janet Simpson. You know, maybe I felt like my name was too basic or something, you know, but I, I just, I don't know, but I just decided like, I think that setting the intention of actually making the album under my name helped me to shed some skin, you know, and to be a little bit more exposed and be a little bit more vulnerable. I noticed one stylistic choice on the record is that a lot of the songs seem to be based around electric guitar as opposed to acoustic guitar. And for, you know, I guess the so-called Americana genre, that's kind of an interesting choice. Yeah. You know, you never know. Well, at least I didn't know that I was going to be making an Americana album specifically and I, you know, I guess that that wasn't like necessarily intentional. In fact, I, if anything, I'm much more influenced by rock and roll, even though I love so much Americana music. Um, I really, electric guitar is just where I have been comfortable for the last 20 years is what I've wanted to play. And so that's just the texture I, I naturally gravitate toward. I have this really great Telecaster that I I could never live without at this point. And I like, that's where I, that's where I write my songs for the most part. So was it surprising to you then to be lumped in with Americana music with this new album? I don't think it was surprising. I certainly hear all of that, you know, once the album was complete, like I definitely hear the Americana vibe there, you know? And like I said, you know, it's, it's definitely, part of who I am. It's part of what I listen to. Um, and I, you know, there's definitely like a roots flavor to a lot of the songs. So, um, sometimes I, I mean, I don't think, I don't think it's really easy to categorize music and just generally speaking anyway, but Americana certainly seems to fit what the record became. Tell me a little bit about the recording process. I know the producer you worked with is named uh, Brad Timko. Is that correct? That's right. What What was that collaboration like? So I definitely would would call him the fifth band member, the fifth musician in the room. Um, he 
has incredible ears and he's able to manipulate sound and engineer sound in a way that's very artistic and very creative to me. Um, it was really fun to work with him because I could say things and I don't have a good studio vocabulary, even though I've made dozens of albums in the studio over time. I just kind of still speak in my own vocabulary when I'm trying to describe something. And I would describe something in a way that I thought he's, he did, he's not going to understand what I'm saying. This is going to be frustrating for him to listen to me trying to fish around for this idea. And he would know instantly what I meant. And he would disappear behind his like, enormous wall of gadgets. And, you know, he has this really amazing wall of, of old analog fixtures in his studio. And, uh, you know, he was able to get those sounds so easily. It was, it was really fun. He's, he's also, um, unafraid to tell an artist to do something again and to give them some guidance about how they might do something better, whether it's singing a part differently or um, playing a different guitar line over something like he's, he's got a really great ear. It was a lot of fun. And I like being pushed. The eighties production touches were those from you or from him? Well, I would definitely say those are from me, but he loves that aesthetic as well. um, Which was really probably gave me more confidence about taking some of those risks or making some of those choices. Um, he also had this great synth with floppy disks, um, you know, with old sounds on it, just that happened to be in the studio. And he was like, I've just been waiting for somebody to want to use that. And I'm like, Oh, I definitely want to play with that, you know? So, um, but I, you know, like going back to what we were talking about earlier, I had referenced things like George Harrison's Got My Mind Set on You. I don't know why that was the song that I needed to reference and I'm wrong. They don't sound alike. But it, for some, I was like, I want this to have that kind of quality, if you know what I mean. And he did. He knew what I meant. So that's kind of funny. Yeah, I was going to ask about your relationship to that sort of late 80s, early 90s. I don't know if adult alternative is the right word for that stuff or just classic rock, but uh, just about your, your love for that, that sub genre. So I was born in 1977. So around the age of, you know, nine or 10, like I grew up on MTV. I was, I remember the first day of MTV. It's a huge fan of MTV and around the age of nine or 10 is probably when I started to begin cultivating my music taste, you know, and, and recognizing what I was deeply drawn to. Um, and some of that would include like what my parents were listening to at the time as well. So, you know, Carly Simon and um, Joni Mitchell and the Eurythmics and things like that were always in our car. But I loved, you know, artists like Bruce Springsteen and I mean, Bonnie Raitt, um, you know, I, I listened to a lot of that in the late eighties on top of, you know, once 120 minutes started, I was staying up late on Sunday night to catch that or taping it on the VCR to watch it the next night. Um, 
And so those sounds definitely were hugely influential. And some of the bands from that time, like the Bangles, you know, were like favorites, like long-term favorites. That Bangles all over the place is still an album I will go back and listen to any old day now. Time out. Before we get back to Janet Simpson, I'd like to update you on a few things we have going on at Back to the Light. There are only two weeks left in our GoFundMe campaign, which you can find at the support tab at backtothelight.net or by searching for Back to the Light at GoFundMe.com. Please help. We also have a ton of releases planned for the label this year, kicking off with the May 7th release of a new single by Joshua C. Travis, who you might know from the network, the Kudzu Conservationist League podcast. For more information on Josh, other new releases, and the GoFundMe, stay tuned to backtothelight.net. Every like, every share, and every donation helps and means a lot. And now, the ad.
You've just heard Nashville Girls from Janet Simpson's new album, Safe Distance. Let's get back to my conversation with Janet. Did you also live in Nashville at some point? I did not live in Nashville, but I was spending a lot of time going back and forth to Nashville for a little while. Um, But no, I I didn't ever live there. Do you have a distaste for Nashville? (laughs) I think I have a distaste for music industry that is too industry heavy. I don't know if that makes sense. I had uh, Nashville just kind of became maybe the, the scapegoat or the fall guy in that song. But, um, back in the early, well, back in the late nineties in the early days of me trying to be out there as an artist on my own, I was living in Atlanta and I was working at a record label and I learned a lot about the music industry, um, and what labels valued in an artist And I would watch artists come in, you know, raw as they were off the street and then get totally repackaged and sold as something totally different. And that was a painful lesson for me. Um, And it it was just, it just reinforced what I already felt about myself, which which was that I never fit in. Like I was never going to be good enough or pretty enough or the right kind of cool or cool at all, you know? And, uh, and so I've always felt like an outsider. And so that song is really just kind of an outsider's anthem. Nashville just happens to represent, um, these days, something about, you know, the industry part of things. It's very hard. It's very hard to work in Nashville. And I have so much respect for the musicians who work so hard in Nashville and, you know, play those long day gigs at Roberts. And I mean, they are working their butts off. It's hard out there, but those aren't the people I'm thinking of when I'm singing about that. Yeah. Robert Roberts is generally pretty cool. I I know the icky parts of Nashville of, of which you speak. Yeah. Yes. Another thing that I sort of hear in the new record or another influence maybe, and I think it's, I think it's something you've acknowledged before is the, the Kristen Hirsch influence. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's definitely a longtime favorite of mine. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, I love throwing muses and I know your, your previous band takes the name from a throwing muses song, but I really like her solo stuff too. And I think there's kind of some similarities there. Oh, thanks. That's, that's really flattering to hear. I I have, um, I have to say that she is the first woman who I heard singing in a way that was not pretty. Um, and it wasn't that she was singing intentionally unpretty. She was just singing with such raw honesty, you know, uh, the quality of her voice, you just kind of feel like you're sitting in the room with a person who's just been around the world 17 times and they're telling you their life story. But she also does it with such poetry. Um, I mean, when I was young, I, I immediately compared her to Sylvia Plath just in the way she saw the world and expressed it. Um, and she's tough. 
you know, she's tough as nails and I love her books for that same reason. She just really is so bare about who she is. Oh, I, I didn't know that she was a writer as well or an author, I should say. I would definitely check out two of her books, um, specifically Rat Girl, which was her first, um, which is a really great memoir. And then she wrote a memoir about her time touring with Vic Chestnut called Don't Suck, Don't Die. And it's absolutely powerful. Um, And I knew Vic as well. And so like, it brought back my own memories. Like I felt like she really talked about him in a way that helped me remember him and my own experiences being around him really well. Well, now I have to ask, how did you know Vic Chestnut? (laughs) So my best friend um, is Liz Durrett. I grew up in Rome, Georgia, and she did too. We met in the fourth grade playing softball and um, her aunt married Vic when we were pretty young, elementary school aged. And um, Liz is also a musician um, and has released a few albums on warm records out of Athens, Georgia. But when we were about 18 or 19, she invited me to come to Vic's to play a show at the 40 Watt. And so I got to stay at Vic's house and just the experience of being around a real, like he was a grown up professional, real musician. Um, and then becoming such a fan of his songwriting um, through getting to know him, being around him. And, and then of course, you know, being so close to Liz. I only got to see him play once and it was with the undertow orchestra, but it was a really cool performance. Did you get to see, ever get to see any of those shows? I don't think that I got, what, what year would that have been? I'm trying to think it was with Will Johnson and Mark Eitzel and, uh, the Pedro, the lion guy, Dave Bazan. Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't see any of those. I do remember that happening. Um, I saw him with several different backing bands. And of course the last was, um, with the, with the, um, Godspeed personnel, Silver D Mount Zion, um, and Guy Picciotto from Fugazi. And that was really incredible. We did a couple of shows, one at the Bowery and one at the Williamsburg music hall. Um, Liz was opening for, Vic in those two venues. And that was the last time I saw him and not too long before he died, but really just the most powerful iteration of his music I ever got to see. You mentioned a bit ago that you also have a project with Will Stewart. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um, Will had reached out to me Will and I did an EP together called the Kusa EP, um, released under his name several years back, I guess 2011 or 12. And it was really pretty. And he was living in Nashville at the time. And he reached out to me and asked me if I'd like to um, intentionally write some songs together. And uh, I was really, at the time, to be honest, Teen Getaway was kind of winding down, you know, Spin had gotten his diagnosis. I was feeling a little lost. I'd released Ring with Delicate Cutters, and I just kind of, I I had 
I had started to feel like maybe I was done with music or music was done with me and I was pretty depressed. So when he reached out to me, it, it was like that, you know, Godfather three and they pulled me back in moment, <laughs> you know, he was, and I was like, okay, you know, I'll give it a try. And I didn't know Will very well. I'd only met him in the studio one day and, and been around him a very short amount of time, but I knew he was a great musician. So we started passing songs back and forth um, over email. And then we got into the studio to record them. And that became the first EP that we did. He moved back to Birmingham and um, we started really, playing shows and, and really writing. And, um, we made a record called the family that I'm, I really very proud of and really love. Um, Will is a, a consummate musician, just so easy and intuitive to work with. Um, and so, I mean, I love everything he does, but I, I really enjoyed doing timber with him. It's really, really fun, really different than what I'd been doing. I want to go back to the moment that you brought up a second ago when you said you had been briefly considering maybe giving up music. I, I've, I've been in that place myself at, at a different time. I'm just curious, like what kind of things were going on for you that, that led you to, to think that way? I think I just felt tapped out. Like maybe I just didn't have anything new to say. I was also just a little bit, I mean, it's, it's really hard when you've been making music for so long and um, you feel like you've given it your best shot and it just, it's just such an uphill battle. I mean, it's, it's so hard to get heard. It really, really is. Um, and I mean, I just wondered if maybe and I was ready for a new life phase. Maybe there was something else that I could do somewhere else. I could put my creative energy um, that maybe I was forcing it in some way. Yeah, I think it's just a classic case of imposter syndrome, you know, um, and, and it, it gets me all the time. You know, I think, I think most people have a little tinge of that at least, but I, I've struggled with it all my life. Like everybody's going to figure out that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Do you remember how you worked your way out of it at the time? Well, you know, I think I just started to feel encouraged when somebody reached out to me out of the blue and said, Hey, do you want to try to work together on something? And I was like, okay, well, this one person thinks that I should do something. So maybe that's something. And then I just really ended up enjoying it. I ended up enjoying the process. I started, I stopped judging myself because I was able to just enjoy the music we were making. Um, and that's just it. You know, it's so easy to become self-conscious and get in your own head, especially if you're in a vacuum. Um, and I think, I think just having a, an outside force to get you out of your head is sometimes what you need just to re-energize you. Are you feeling emboldened now by the overwhelming response that your new album is getting? <laughs> Well, I'm definitely feeling um, really grateful um, and, and really humbled by it. Um, it's really unexpected. And um, it, I, I think if anything, I feel a little overwhelmed. But I, you know, 
I'm just trying to savor this moment where um, I am because it is, it is so hard to get your music heard. And I'm so grateful that people are listening. I'm so grateful that it's, that it's getting out there. Um, it kind of just blows me away. Um, so I, I don't want to, I don't want to think too much about it. I just want to kind of enjoy the moment, I guess. Do you think the timing of the release during the pandemic has worked for you or against you? It's hard to know. Um, I think that the, the, the fact that this album is titled safe distance feels very, um, there's a lot of synchronism going on there because our synchronicity, I think that the, you know, the album was named in November of 2019 before we even knew what was going on with this, with this virus that we've all been living with. Um, none of us had heard of COVID-19 and so that has been kind of interesting to play with and think about, but you know, I, I have felt really challenged because, you know, normally I would be on the road right now. I, I would be celebrating the release by going and playing shows and kind of building on that energy. And, and I hope very much that I get to do that in a few months. Um, but it has made it a little bit difficult to know how to operate. Are you looking at trying to book shows for the fall or next spring or something like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. As soon as I can get on the road, I will be looking to do that. And I can't wait. I actually love touring. Awesome. Well, if you need some hookups in Memphis and or Chicago, you know where to, you know where to call. Heck yeah, that'd be great. I can't wait to go eat at High Five Ramen in Chicago, by the way. That place is so good. (laughs) I don't think I've been there yet. Oh, you got to go. It's really good. Chicago is is very rich in ramen options. Yes, it is. It is. Well, cool. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for joining me on the show, Janet. Thanks so much for having me. It's just really great to talk to you again. All right. Let's close things out with the title track to both Janet's album and this episode. This is Safe Distance.
That's the show. Thank you to Janet Simpson. Thank you to Arthur with two H's for the opening theme. Thank you to Joey Pegram for the closing theme. Thank you for listening, as always. And until next time, take care, y'all. of the Back to the Light podcast network at backtothelight.net.